Dietz and Watson's been making meats and cheeses the right way since forever. What's that mean? It means never cutting corners, ever. It means cooking, not processing. It means our Virginia brand ham that's cooked to perfection, then twice baked to layer the flavors. It takes more time, but you can taste the difference. We come to work every day to do it the right way, even if it's the hard way. Because if it's not right for us, it's not right for you. Dietz and Watson, it's a family thing since 1939. In order to support our show, we need the help of some great advertisers. And we want to make sure those advertisers are ones you'll actually want to hear about. But we need to learn a little more about you to make that possible. So go to podsurvey.com slash artofman and take a quick anonymous survey that will help us get to know you better. That way, we can bring on advertisers you won't want to skip. Once you've completed the quick survey, you can enter for a chance to win a $100 Amazon gift card. Terms and conditions apply. Again, that's podsurvey.com slash artofman. A-R-T-O-F-M-A-N podsurvey.com slash artofman thanks for your help Brett McKay here, and welcome to another edition of the Art of Manliness podcast. Passion is a word that's been thrown around a lot these last few decades. People have a vague notion that passion is a very good thing and that they're supposed to find it in their work and lives. But beyond passion as a buzzword, its realities are actually very little discussed and seldomly well understood. My guests today have set out to correct this deficit in their new book, The Passion Paradox, a guide to going all in, finding success, and discovering the benefits of an unbalanced life. Their names are Brad Stolberg and Steve Magnus, and I had them on the show last year to discuss their book, Peak performance. Today, we talk about the parts of passion that rarely get talked about. It has both a positive and a negative side, how the advice to find your passion isn't very useful, and the three things you need to really grow your passion. We also discuss why going all in on your passion too early can lead to long-term failure, how passion can lead individuals to cheat to get and stay ahead, and why embracing the six pillars of the mastery mindset can help negate the negative sides of passion and harness its positive powers. We end our conversation discussing how it's okay to have an unbalanced life and what to do if you can no longer or do the thing you're passionate about, or you simply stop being passionate about your work. After the show's over, check out our show notes at aom.is/slash passion paradox. All right, Brad Stolberg, Steve Magnus, welcome back to the show. Thanks so much for having us. We love the show, so it's great to be back. So, you guys got a new book out. Last time we talked about peak performance and why, even in the mental game, and work performance, sort of the rest is important to recover. We talked about the stress adaptation recovery process, even our mental game. This one is about passion, which gets a lot of talk on the interwebs. Sometimes it's a good thing, sometimes it's a bad thing. You guys take a very nuanced look at it. So let's talk about it. Brad, like what how is this book, The Passion Paradox? How is that a continuation of what you guys started in your first book? So the the first book was, as you said, really about what are the the core principles required to achieve and sustain peak performance. So none of the hacks that are going to make you feel really good for a few days and then you get bored or you burn out, but much more what are what are the fundamental foundational pillars that a whole a whole career and lifetime of performing really well can rest on. And what Steve and I realized at the end of that book was that there was this stone that we left uncovered almost because it was too big of a stone. It, it needs its own book. And that's, that's the book that we, end up, we ended up writing, which is passion. 
nearly all of the peak performers that we interviewed for the book, uh, the individuals that we coach both in business and in athletics, the vast majority of them have this inability to feel content. It's like a drive that is a never-ending well. And this drive is often celebrated, but this drive can also lead to all kinds of problems. And uh, when Steve and I started looking at the research on passion, what we found is that the, the word currently is used in a very positive connotation. You know, fine, follow your passion, and everything else will be blissful. You'll have a great life. But tracing the word back, it wasn't always like that. At first, the etymology of passion comes from pasio, which means to suffer. And the passion paradox, the title of the book, is just that, that while passion can be a, a wonderful, life-energizing force, a gift that can help propel you to great things, if you're not careful, it can also become a curse. And sometimes being passionate can feel like both things at once. So that's the passion paradox then. Yeah, it's a gift and a curse. Well, I mean, Steve, you know, as I say, people talk a lot about passion, sort of, you know, you read entrepreneur books, uh, you know, going for your dreams. But like, I feel like when people talk about passion in this positive way that we're, that they typically talk about, like they, they're saying different things. So what, what is that positive, what does that positive passion look like? Yeah. So what we found in our research is exactly that, that there's two types of passion, uh, almost like a positive and a negative, but in the research world, they call it obsessive and harmonious. Like the positive side is when you're doing an activity, you're pursuing an activity or a job because you enjoy that activity in, in and of itself, right? When your goal becomes the path and your path becomes the goal, kind of. I think the biggest thing is you have control over it. On the negative side, the obsessive side, what happens is you start pursuing that activity for external rewards, for validation. You're, you almost become like blind to any sort of a downfall or negative impact that it could have on you. And, you know, the way I like to separate it is it's almost like that passion becomes the controller. So it's no longer you're pursuing this because you want to. It's almost like you're pursuing it because you have to. So speaking to that point, you guys talk about some of the biology and psychology that goes on whenever we feel passionate, both in that positive and negative sense. So like, Brad, what, what goes on? What goes on in our brain and in our physiology whenever we feel like that positive passion? So what's interesting is that when we feel the positive passion or the negative passion, what's happening in the brain is actually quite similar. And that is there's an enormous release of the neurochemical dopamine. And that is the neurochemical of desire. So it's not so much associated with the achievement of a reward, but it's associated with the pursuit of an award. It is also the neurochemical that is implicated in lots of addictions. So uh, another really interesting thing that, that came up on the nuance of this topic is that passion resembles addiction in so many ways. The definition of addiction is the relentless pursuit of something despite negative consequences. Now, if you're training for the Olympics or if you're an entrepreneur starting a company where you know the odds are 99% against you, that can often feel like the relentless pursuit of something despite negative consequences, at least despite negative probabilities. There's also quite a strong linkage between the feeling of passion and mental illness. An example that I always like to use is if you think of an Olympic swimmer, who is spending six to eight hours a day staring at a line in a pool, 
And if they miss a workout, they become very anxious about the fact that they missed the workout. There are stories of Olympians that when they're traveling, they're waking up at two in the morning because they have to get their workout in. That's very similar to obsessive compulsive disorder, where the obsession is the Olympics or the, the mastery of a pursuit, and then the compulsion is swimming. The difference is that society celebrates Olympians, and we call that a productive passion. Whereas if you had the same passion for even maybe video games are now considered an addiction, suddenly it's a negative thing. So again, that's the paradox that there's this, there's this part of it, like Steve says, which is, do you control your passion or does it control you? But there's also this part of it, well, what direction is it pointed in? If I'm playing video games nine hours a day because I want to be a professional gamer, depending on what community I'm in, that might be seen as something that needs psychotherapy. If I'm swimming nine hours a day because I'm pursuing the Olympics, I'm a hero. So it's, it's this really fine line. Same thing with entrepreneurial pursuits. You know, there's, there's, there's a level of optimism that the behavioral scientist Dan Kahneman has called um, delusion. And to be a good entrepreneur, you have to be a little bit delusional. So these are the interesting topics that we, we wanted to explore because uh, it's just not so straightforward. So it sounds like passion be either be positive or negative. So it's pretty much the same thing, the same sort of things that desire to, to achieve something, but it can be positive or negative depending on context, right? So if you're a professional gamer and you're like in a family of doctors, well, that's your passion for video games is going to be seen as negative. But then also uh, it can be negative or positive depending on whether you have control over the passion. Yeah, exactly. That's well said. So there's, if, if we're going to be like really logical, and I love how you just broke that down, there's what direction are you pointing your passion in? So is it pointed in a productive direction or a destructive direction? Because you could really be passionate about like scoring your next hit of math, and that is certainly not positive. Let's assume that you're pointing it in a productive direction. Then the next layer is, do you have control over it or does it have control over you? So let's talk about this idea of finding your passion because there's a lot of books written about that. And we've also had guests on the podcast, like Cal Newport wrote a book called So Good you, They Can't Ignore You. We kind of made the case that following your passion can be kind of dumb sometimes. And you guys talk about that, finding your passion. And again, the the advice you give is is nuanced. So, you know, Steve, when people typically spit out the advice of finding your passion, what do they mean? And how is that sort of typical idea of finding your passion can lead you that that sort of negative passion? Yeah. You know, I think the best way to look at it is actually a, a comparison to love, right? So we have this idea that, you know, there's a soulmate out there for us, that there's this one person that, you know, will fill our holes and our relationships and make us a better person. Well, that idea in love didn't exist in the, until around the beginning of the 20th century, right? When romanticism started taking over and, you know, we saw all these Disney movies getting made and stuff. And that kind of puts this idea of soulmate into our, our mindset. Well, the same thing happens in with passion. So we, ha- we developed this idea in the 20th century that there's one fit for our activity or job that we'd uh, like to desire. And that's what researchers started calling the fit mindset of passion, where there's one thing that we need to do or that when we start a new pursuit, we should instantly feel passionate about it. And it turns out that if you look at research and surveys and stuff, almost 80% of people believe in this fit mindset view of passion that they need to feel this instant connection, right? That they need to go find something that they're passionate about. 
And it turns out that not only is that wrong, but there's negative consequences for that, right? And, and some of those are that if you think that you have to find a passion, that anytime you pursue something, the first sign of challenge or the first sign of adversity that shows that, oh, this might not be uh, easy, this might not be the thing that I'm in love with doing, is people will turn away. So we're more likely to give up. We're more likely to move on. So instead, kind of what we've found and what we, you know, profess is instead of find your passion, dabble in things that you're interested in and then see if they can develop into passions. So, okay, there's the dabbling part. So, but how do you, let's say you've, how do you recognize when you think there's something there that you could become passionate about? And like, once you do, how do you grow it in a way where you, you don't have those downsides of like the fit mindset of passion where uh, you, you have some adversity or you, maybe you have a time you kind of get bored with it that you don't give up right away? Yeah. So that's a good question. So, you know, what you find with is first you have to have that mindset, right? Of, okay, passion is something that can grow. It's not something that is fixed. So that's step number one. Once you have that is, you know, we're really good at this when we're young, right? We're really good as kids is dabbling in different things that we're interested in and then figuring out and finding the things that we're pretty good at and the things that we enjoy over time. And it turns out that, you know, we can almost predict those to a degree based on if they fill kind of some basic needs. And what a group of psychologists and researchers developed this theory, which is called self-determination theory, that says we need basically three main things to keep us uh, satisfied, right? So if we're pursuing a passion or a job, if we have these three main things, then it's likely that that we'll enjoy it and develop and all that good stuff. And those things are, number one is competency. So what that means is we need to be able to feel like we're making progress, like we're becoming competent, right? The second one is autonomy. So we have to have some sort of degree of control, right? So if we're in a job or if our passion is something that a boss dictates everything and we have no freedom or expression, then the likelihood of us developing into something that is a positive passion for us is very low. So some sort of degree of autonomy. And then the third and final thing is called relatedness, which means that we need to feel connected to either the other people who are pursuing this with us, let's say a job, or that this has something bigger than ourselves, some greater meaning. So this passion might be towards impacting the greater good of, of humanity or something like that. So it's those three things, those three needs that we really need to be, be filled, uh, competency, autonomy, and relatedness. Yeah, the competency factor I think is what Cal Newport talked about in his book. That oftentimes the thing that makes you passionate or like you, about your work is like you're good at it, and like getting mm-hmm. good at something that takes time, and it might take years before you get good at it. And I thought that really changed the way I looked at passion. Getting good at something can bring you satisfaction and enjoyment in the long run. Yeah, and I think I think you know Steve made the point a little while ago about the 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 relationship to romantic love. And it's pretty similar, right? Like anyone that's been in a long-term relationship knows that love kind of grows as you nurture it. And if you're good at nurturing it, and that often results from good communication in a partnership, then, then the love grows. And it's been widely reported recently 
in BuzzFeed and in the Atlantic that particularly in the millennial generation, less people are finding love in, in people hypothesize, researchers hypothesize that this is because there's this expectation that I'm going to meet the perfect person. And now that there's all these online dating apps such as Tinder and OkCupid, it feels like the playing field is so big. So therefore, of course, I should keep searching. Otherwise, I'm going to settle. And I think the same exact thing is true for passion. We're so interconnected that it feels like, oh, if I can't find the perfect thing for me in the universe, then I'm going to keep on searching. And I think having that bar set so high just keeps you searching. Uh, okay. So you, you dabble with different things. You find something that provides competency, autonomy, and relatedness. And you find that and you keep working at it and you can sort of nurture that good passion and avoid the downsides of a fit mindset passion. But another idea you hear when people talk or write about passion is this idea you got to go all in from the beginning, right? You got to burn boats and, and just no escape hatches available if you really want to pursue your passion. What does your research say about that, Brad? So um, it's kind of a theme of this book is everything that you've heard about passion is wrong. Research says the exact opposite that the best way to cultivate a passion and, and to do it in a way that can, can stick with you for a long period of time is to do it gradually. There's this, there's this notion that Steve and I came up with uh, around keeping your day job. And what this means is just that. So as you said, you're dabbling in your interest, you find something that you're competent in, maybe it's writing, maybe it's blogging, could be podcasting, could be woodwork. And everyone, all the self-help books are going to say, all right, you found your must, so you should quit your job and go all in. Not true. What ends up happening when you do that is suddenly you need to have an income and that creates an enormous pressure. Most people don't perform well under that pressure. And even if they do perform well under that pressure, it forces them to perhaps expedite the, the path and also to take on work that they might not otherwise want to take on. So the example there is someone that becomes passionate about writing, quits their job, and then suddenly they have to churn out you know, nine listicle articles every week just to pay rent. This is also true, not just in creative pursuits, but in more standard conventional corporate pursuits. So uh, there's some research that's been covered in the Harvard Business Review that shows that entrepreneurs who start their companies as a side gig while keeping their day jobs are about 33% more likely to have successful companies five, 10 years later on. And the reason for that is, is, is exactly what I just said in the creative pursuits. If you're starting the company on the side, you have much more freedom to take meaningful risks. Whereas if suddenly you've got to pay the bills, you can't take those risks. And a huge part about starting a, a passionate pursuit is the ability to have some freedom and autonomy to take risks. No, I love that advice. Uh, and like I've seen it play out in my own life. You know, I, The Art of Manliness, I started this when I was in law school as a part-time thing. And it took about three or four years before I could do it full-time. And even then, like I was still hedging my bets considerably until I was finally, okay, yes, I can do this. So yeah, whenever I have people ask me for advice, like, hey, should I just like go in? I'm like, no, just keep your day job and, and wait a few years before you know this is a sure thing. Totally. It, it's funny that you say that. So I know in, in, in my own case, um, let's see, I applied to journalism school in high school when I was 17 for college. I didn't get in. So like any other 17-year-old, I'm like, oh, guess I'm not going to be a writer came back to writing when I started triathlon and it was cool to have a blog. I wrote a blog that nobody read except for me for two years, got a lucky break, had an article published, wrote unpaid for the Huffington Post for another year, started writing like $50 articles for men's fitness, all while having another job. 
And it wasn't for a good six years of writing that writing became even a somewhat sizable proportion of my income. And it wasn't until eight years in a published book that now I actually call myself a writer. I loved it eight years ago, but it was a very gradual process. And I'm, I'm pretty sure that if I would have gone all in, it, I would not have ended up where I am. All right. So I, I like that idea. It's because it's counterintuitive. You have to be conservative to uh, take big risks. It reminds me of, we have, we've had Nassim Taleb on the podcast and his barbell strategy where he's like, you know, you, sort of investment strategy, but also strategy towards life is you have one thing where it's like very conservative and, and then you have another part where you like take lots of risks, but you can do those risks because you have that conserve, those conservative assets there with you. Exactly. I think Nassim Taleb talks about being an accountant and a rock star at the same time. <laughs> right, right. I mean, he, I mean, he highlights people like uh, you know a lot of famous poets and writers. Like they had really boring jobs, like bankers, right? And and they did their writing on you know they moonlighted their writing, but the reason they could do their writing is because they had the, the boring the boring job. Okay, let's talk about this idea of we found our passion, we're nurturing it, it's coming along, we're we're staying in the rails on the sort of that positive passion, but how can even positive passion start going awry, Steve? Yeah. So it's interesting because no no one sets out to have obsessive or negative passion, right? It all starts out from a good place. And if and when we started looking at people who had this, you know, negative side of passion, they all started out with either being brilliant entrepreneurs or like exceptional athletes who were trying to change the world or improve their team's performance to a great degree, but then ended up being derailed. And what tends to happen, the reason you go towards that negative side is is two reasons. Is one is that the external markers of success, the external rewards start becoming predominantly the thing that you're looking at. So it becomes more important to, you know, um, make a, a certain amount of money or win the game than it does to, you know, originally that you enjoyed it and what you were trying to do in your mission to change whatever. That's number one. And then number two that happens is your identity becomes wrapped around what you do. So you can't separate that, hey, I am, let's say, a runner versus I am a person who runs and is trying to make the Olympics. Like, there's a difference there. And when our identity becomes wrapped up into it so far, then if we lose, let's say we lose a race or we fail or our book launch fails or our, you know, next business opportunity fails, it's not just that I failed at my job, it's that I myself am a failure. So when you get those things tied together, when you get your identity wrapped around what you're doing and you get failures and these downsides, what happens is it creates this obsessive passion where your goal becomes almost to survive and make sure that you know you keep the appearances of that everything is being successful. So you start to have this fear of failure, this playing not to lose, this fear being the short-term motivator. And what happens, again, if you look at it from a business standpoint, if you look at it from, you know, people like Jeff Skilling at Enron, who was extremely brilliant at, at the start of his career and, you know, touted passion as a virtue, then cheated, cooked the books and did all this stuff. Or if you look at from an athletic standpoint, an individual like Alex Rodriguez, who was a phenomenal player as a youth, phenomenal playing in the NBA or 
MLB when he was 19, 20 years old. Great player. but just succumb to using steroids later on. The research backs that up. If you tend towards the obsessive style of passion, you're more likely to cheat. You're more likely to plagiarize. You're more likely to bend the rules because winning or uh, accomplishing this external goal is more important than anything else. For those who embrace the impossible, the Defender 110 is up for the adventure. This iconic vehicle has been redefined with a thoroughly modern design. The exterior has been reimagined with compelling proportions and precise detailing, and the interior is built with robust materials and integrity. The Defender capability is legendary, whether you're facing off-road challenges or harsh weather conditions. Durability has been tested to the extreme, cargo capacity means more room for your gear, and there's been powerful innovations like the intuitive driver display and award-winning infotainment system that keeps you connected. Innovative camera technologies deliver unobstructed views and effortless maneuvering, and the Defender is ready for a wide range of adventures. The Defender family features two-door Defender 90, the Defender 110, and the Defender 130, which seats up to eight. Push what's possible with a vehicle made to go further, the Defender 110. Learn more at LandRoverUSA.com forward slash Defender. That's LandRoverUSA.com forward slash Defender. All right, so if you're like me, you've probably signed up for a whole bunch of stuff that has a recurring monthly fee. Subscriptions to newsletters, subscriptions to services that you use online, uh, could be a streaming service, something like that. You sign up for it and then you forget about it. And then every month you're getting charged and charged and charged and they just all add up and you have a hard time trying to figure out where did I sign up for this? I don't know where this is coming from. Well, let me tell you, there's an app that can help you with that. It's called Rocket Money. Rocket Money is a personal finance app that finds and cancels your unwanted subscriptions, monitors your spending, and helps lower your bills so that you can grow your savings. Rocket Money has over 5 million users and has saved a total of $500 million in canceled subscriptions, saving members up to $740 a year when using all of the app's features. I had a chance to use Rocket Money and it works. You connect your account to it and then it goes through your accounts and helps you find those recurring subscription fees that maybe you forgot about and then you can cancel them and save yourself a bit of money each month. Stop wasting money on things you don't use. Cancel your unwanted subscriptions by going to rocketmoney.com manliness. That's rocketmoney.com slash manliness, rocketmoney.com slash manliness. All right, if you have a family, then you need to get term life insurance to protect them. It's one of the smartest financial decisions you can make, and the start of the new year is the perfect time to get it done so you can focus on whatever else the year has in store for you. Fabric by Gerber Life was designed by parents for parents to help you get a high-quality, surprisingly affordable term life insurance policy in less than 10 minutes. Fabric has flexible policies that fit your family and your budget with quality policies like a million dollars in coverage for less than a dollar a day. There's no risk to apply. They have a 30-day money-back guarantee and you can cancel at any time. I remember when I was a new dad, I had a lot of thoughts going through my head. One of them was, how can I take care of my family when I'm gone if something happens to me? Well, it's one of the first things I did. I got term life insurance, one of the best decisions I made. Join the thousands of parents who trust Fabric to protect their family. Apply today in just minutes at meetfabric.com slash manliness. That's meetfabric.com slash manliness. M-E-E-T fabric.com slash manliness. Policies issued by Western Southern Life Assurance Company, not available in certain states. Prices subject to underwriting and health questions. Picture that thing you've always wanted to learn. All right, you got that in your head? Now picture learning it from the person who's literally the best at it in the world. That's what you get with Masterclass. This year, learn from the best to become your best with Masterclass. 
Masterclass offers over 180 world-class instructors, and many of these instructors are former AOM podcast guests. You can learn negotiation from Chris Voss, leadership skills from Jocko Willink, how to master your habits with James Clear. Plus, every new membership comes with a 30-day money-back guarantee, so there's no risk. So recently, I went through the masterclass on negotiation with Chris Voss. A lot of useful information in there. Talked about the value of knowing a negotiation, how to use your body language and speech patterns to get your best out of a negotiation. Very well done. I really enjoyed it and got a lot out of it. Right now, listeners of our podcast can get an additional 15% off an annual membership at masterclass.com slash AOM. Get 15% off right now at masterclass.com slash AOM. Masterclass.com slash AOM. Check out the masterclass on negotiation with Chris Voss. We're going to take a quick break for your word from our sponsors. And now back to the show. But that's again, this is another fine line because those external goals, I mean, don't they kind of play a role in motivation? And I mean, so how do we how do we still have use those external goals for motivation, which are which is nice to get those dopamine hits that you, you see uh, your book doing well or you get A's, you get accolades from people, but without falling into the trap where it becomes the end all be all. Yeah, so I think that it, like you said, it's tricky and it's nuanced. And uh, as we write in the book, that unless you have like, extensive Zen meditation training, it's very hard to not care about those external validators and those markers of success. What Steve and I believe, and borne out by our reporting and research, is that so long as you keep about 51% of your motivation coming from within, then you're safe. So as long as the majority of your motivation comes from within, because it should feel good to succeed. It feels great to write a best-selling book. I'm sure it feels great to have a top podcast. It feels great to get promoted. The, the thing is that as great as that feels, the work itself and what you're doing, or at least some greater purpose for doing it, needs to always be greater. And this does not happen automatically, right? It's not just like I can tell myself, oh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make sure that my drive stays from within. It's actually something that has to be practiced because as Steve said, what happens is that if, if you're not careful, even if your drive starts from within or you've kept your drive from within, there are so many external barometers that that really like take a claim in your psyche and very quickly they, they can get a hold of you and suddenly you, you thought you were driven from within, but you're actually a slave to getting the promotion or a slave to recognition or a slave to hitting the next you know 2,000 Twitter followers or whatever it might be. So uh, another common notion that we dispel is that passion isn't just this one-time thing. It's not like, oh, I have my passion. I'm driven from within. Now everything's going to be good. But it's actually, it's an ongoing practice. And there are concrete steps that you can take to help keep your drive predominantly coming from within. I mean, yeah, the other downside, and you talk about this in the book of uh, using external markers that, yeah, you'll experience that dopamine hit, we'll call it. And it feels good, but like you get used to it. And you have to move on to something else. And it's always, you're never satisfied, basically. Yeah. I mean, as we talked about earlier, Brad mentioned it, is that passion and addiction are close cousins, right? So it's no no different than, you know, being a drug addict where you need more, more drugs, more frequently, et cetera, et cetera, to satisfy things. The same thing happens when you're looking at pursuing your passion and you know, utilizing external rewards for it is we need bigger performances. You know, I, I think we can all relate to this in our own life. You know, as a writer, I can remember the first time I got something published and being ah oh, through the roof. 
you know, nowadays it's, it's not that big of a deal. Like I'm not going to get any dopamine hit from doing that. So what you really have to do is again, step back and separate things so that you don't go down this almost like vicious cycle of needing more, 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 which can put you on this path to obsessive passion. And that obsessive passion can make you or cause you to make choices you might regret later on. So how do you funnel that passion, that's energy towards the, the positive where you're motivated from an internal source? How does that happen, Brad? Yeah. So again, I think it, it's key for, for listeners to hear and not hold themselves to such a high bar where, where suddenly you don't feel good. I mean, we felt great when you reached out to us and said you wanted to have us on the podcast. And we make sure that that, that stays, a, 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 even if it's a slim, but a slim minority of motivation. So based on all the research and reporting that we did in our work coaching entrepreneurs, executives, and athletes, Steve and I developed something that we like to call the mastery mindset. And the mastery mindset has six pillars, all of which are fairly mindset-based, but that have concrete practices underneath them that are a part of practice of passion and keeping it harmonious. So the first pillar is this notion of drive from within, which we've talked a lot about. How do you keep drive from within? We like to call it the 24-hour rule. So this is any time that you have a huge success or if you have a terrible failure, give yourself 24 hours to celebrate the success or grieve the defeat. But then after that 24 hours, get back to the work. There's something about getting back to the work that, that just comes with all of this humility. If you've had a great success and you get back to the work, you're very quickly reminded that, wow, like the, I have to start again and this is hard, but I like the work. If you had a bad failure, anyone can tell you that getting back to the work it just almost fills that gap because you're like, okay, I can try again. I can do this. What I really like about this is the work itself, not the outcome. The second part of the mastery mindset is to, to have this notion of process over outcomes. So you might have this big grand outcome, which is to publish a book or to start a business or to become a vice president at your company or to, to have some kind of groundbreaking scientific breakthrough. But once you have that outcome, that outcome goal should become this North Star that you're shooting for. And you should have all of these small process markers that are under your control along the way. So did I write 500 words a day? Did I, did I challenge myself to speak more at a meeting? The difference is that when you're focused on the process, you're validating and measuring yourself on all things that you can control. Whereas if you're super focused on outcomes, then things are outside of your control. Uh, uh, another huge part of the mastery mindset is this notion of embracing, embracing acute failure for chronic gains. So again, if your long-term goal is mastery, is developing a lifelong passion, suddenly failure isn't like this end-all, be-all, terrible event. It's actually an opportunity to learn, to gain more information so you can keep on going. Uh, and then the last three elements of the mastery mindset are to have this best goal of getting better. So if your goal is to get better, then any success isn't an endpoint and any failure is just information. And then to be present and to be patient. So again, it's drive from within, process over outcomes, embrace acute failure for chronic gains. The best goal is to get better, cultivate presence, and be patient. And um, that process over outcomes made me, like the thing that came to mind as I was reading that, as you were talking again, was like, you know, great coaches like Bill Walsh, who, you know, he wrote the book, uh, The Score Takes Care of Itself, where he established these these metrics, these processes that the San Francisco 49ers are going to do. 
And it didn't matter if this the, the game, you know, they won the game. As long as they did these things, these own personal benchmarks, they'd be okay. And like he turned this team, it used to be like the worst team in the NFL, turned it around, won Super Bowl like the next year. Same thing with uh, John Wooden. He had the same sort of out, the same sort of mindset process over outcome. Yeah. And what's interesting is like, if you look back to like original Buddhist text or stoicism, like we're talking like, you know, BC, uh, before the modern calendar, the greatest minds were saying the same things. So I think it's interesting, like you mentioned Bill Walsh or Wooden, or more recently, Greg Popovich or Bill Belichick. Like the more that you see these patterns, the more that we're, I have confidence in saying these things are probably true. So yeah, like a process over outcome and, and, and even in parenting, like I've got an 11 month old now and it's so tempting to be like, is he walking? Is he talking? Is he meeting these milestones? But that's kind of dumb because development's nonlinear. So it's the better thing is much more like, is he playing? You know, are we reading to him? Is he smiling? And I think that this process over outcome thing, again, it's tricky because in the current ethos, it requires swimming upstream because everything seems so outcome-based today. But yeah, that's not a recipe for long-term success, nor for, for health and well-being. So there's this other idea that you hear when people write about passion on blogs and books, that you can be passionate about something, your work, your hobby, whatever it is, but also have a balanced life. Is, that po- is it possible you're both passionate and balanced at the same time? You know, like most things we've talked about, there's a nuanced answer, but you know, in our opinion, it's not, you can't, right? So balance and passion are almost antithetical, right? So think about any time you've been in the throes of doing something passionate, whether that's in, you know, in the zone in writing or like in the zone during a basketball game or whatever it is you're doing, like, or even during love, right? When you're first falling in love, like you are literally completely consumed by that activity. That is the only thing that you're thinking about. You're not thinking about, you know, what you're going to make for dinner or your kids at home or anything like that. Like passion is being fully consumed. So I, I think, you know, what we found is that trying to be balanced and devoting equal proportions of time and energy to other areas of our lives, like that detracts from the experience of being passionate. So instead, again, what we found is that everything has this kind of consequence, right? One of the persons we profiled in the book, Warren Buffett, has this immense passion for uh, investing, right? But his father or his son said he had to work really hard to be good at living, right? Because he was really passionate about investing, but this other side eh, wasn't that good at it. So we had to almost, there was this trade-off to do it. And if you look at other figures in history, for instance, Gandhi was incredibly amazing at what he did and for India and bringing peace and all that stuff. But he was also kind of a poor father. That doesn't mean that Gandhi is a bad person or anything like that. It's just that when you're passionate about something, you're going to be inherently unbalanced. So it's almost accepting that and understanding that. But, so, but how do you how do you balance that with you like other people right so talk about you you mentioned family life that's sort of suffering because of individuals being passionate about something so like what do you like, what do you tell your family like do you have, have this conversation like look I love you guys but this thing this thing's more I mean do you, do you have to say like it's more important like what do you what do you do <laughs> yeah you know I think the big thing and what we we kind of profess which is 
is that you need to have self-awareness to understand what your trade-off is, right? So is it something that you're going to neglect, right? Is it, hey, I'm going to neglect my family for a little bit, right? And that sounds horrible to do, but the other part of that is, is having the ability to step back and zoom in and out of your passion, right? So it's this thing of, hey, maybe during this time frame, like I'm going to be all consumed by this entrepreneurial job that I'm doing. But when I get home at six o'clock, like it's all family and I'm going to try to forget about this a little bit. And it's, it's really about creating that self-awareness to, to be able to ensure that you're in charge of making those choices and evaluating the trade-offs and knowing what you might be missing out on the other hand. And if, if you can do that, you're okay. You know, I think back to actually a formative experience in, uh, in high school for me, which is when my coach in high school, I ran track and cross country, we were on the brink of being really good. I ended up being the fastest miler in the in the country for high school that year. But before that season, I remember our coach, Gerald Stewart, pulling us aside and saying, hey, guys, if you're on this team and you're you're in this journey, like you can only be good or great at a couple things at a time. I think he said like two or three things at a time. If you're going to be on this team, you're making this one thing. Okay. If you're going to school, you should probably consider that. But there's not much else left in there. And you might have to sacrifice and not go to the high school parties and do all these other things like that. And he was spot on. Like we were giving something up. I was not balanced in doing that. But it was like you're aware of that choice. And I think that's the big thing. As long as you're aware of it and you're understanding the choices that you're making, then it's not bad to be unbalanced at times. I like that idea of being balanced, some, un, unbalanced sometimes. It doesn't have to be all the time because that would be like right. going to Passio, negative passion. But it's okay to like have periods where like you're completely unbalanced. Exactly. I, I mean, I think of it, look at... Brad and I, as we're writing this book, there's times like, for instance, we're in the the deep throes of kind of finalizing it where we are all consumed by, hey, we got to get this done. When we go to launch this book, right, those couple days surrounding launch time, like we've set it aside and said, hey, we're all in on this, right? You know, I remember for, for our first book, Peak Performance, the day it launched, we were like, okay. We're going to do all this for launch stuff, but then we're going to step aside and we're going to go down to the gym and exercise and we're going to leave our phones and all this other stuff alone. And we went to try and do that and it was impossible, right? We were on there checking to see how how the book was selling and getting our little dopamine hits because at that time, right, we we almost made the choices. What's most important? And, and right now it's like promoting, selling this book, et cetera. So it's at different times, points in your your life, you kind of have to make that choice of, hey, what do I want to be all consumed by? And the biggest thing to keep make sure it doesn't turn negative is just have the ability to step back, right? Where it goes wrong is when someone gets all consumed and then they don't have that ability to kind of zoom back out and be like, hey, wait a minute. Like I'm neglecting A, B, and C over here. Do I really want to neglect that for any longer or do I have to start shifting my attention to that. Brad, were you going to say something? Yeah, I was I was just going to add in too that you know the the examples that Steve gave like Gandhi, I mean, yeah, if you're going to totally change the course of the world, odds are that's all that you're going to do. 
but the, the, well, the same theme applies on smaller scales, you know, you can start a company and still be a really good family person. And you might not have too many hobbies. You might not be a great friend. You might not be a great family member beyond your, your nuclear family. And these are things that people don't like talking about. But I think that what frustrates a lot of people is the way that, they, that the culture talks about balance. It's you should be super passionate about your job. You should take your kids to school. You should have four hobbies. You should get beers with the guys once a week. You should call your parents twice. You know, like all of these stuff at once. You, you just cannot do it. And what ends up happening is it's a false bar and you don't reach it. So you're really disappointed. So as Steve was saying, like, I, I do think it's important to, to call out like, yep, like there are trade-offs. If I really care about something inherently, I'm going to be less interested in and spend less time on other things. And if you're forthright about that and you bring those trade-offs to light, then you can evaluate them, be very deliberate in doing so, and then create boundaries and stick to those boundaries. So in my case, it, it really is, right now, it's my work, my family, and a physical practice. And, and even a physical practice, I could say, is a part of my job because I'm, I'm most creative when, I'm, like, when, when my body's in motion. But besides the point, I'm not as good of a friend as I could be. And, and there are times of the year when it's really bad, like when a book's coming out. And then after that period, I kind of double down on friendship. Uh, and, and I think that, it, I know I sound like a broken record, but this, this, this point hits me hard because I see it in so many people trying to be everything to everyone at the same time and just disappointing themselves and disappointing other people versus calling a spade a spade and saying, you know what, like I'm, this is a period of my life where I'm going all in on X and Y. And as a result, W and Z just aren't going to get my attention. And that's okay. You can have it all, but not all at once. <laughs> yeah. That you could, you could edit me out for the last 30 seconds. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> so here's another thing that I, you, you talk about when people think when they find their passion, like they'll always be passionate. Like it's, they're done. They found their like life's work, their life's mission. But you guys talk about it's possible to get burnt out even on your passion. So, Steve, what's going on? How, how is it possible to get burnt out on a passion? <laughs> I, I mean, I think it's possible to get burnt out on anything is number one. But it's, it's like anything, right? If you're investing all this time, energy, et cetera, burnout can occur. Because burnout occurs generally when you mess up what we called in our first book, this, this uh, stress plus rest equals growth equation is when you mess up this how hard are you stressing versus how much are you recovering, this balance cycle, right? It's no different than getting burnt out or fatigued from lifting weights or running too much or whatever have you. Like, I love running, but I've been burnt out on running because I messed up that balance. And it's the same in passion. If I go heavily invested and let's say my job or writing, whatever, whatever have you, and I don't give myself the time or space to recover and step away from it, then I'm going to feel burnt out. So, you know, it's, it's, again, comes back to being intentional about it and also setting your, your life up so you understand that, so that you understand after a period where you're going, you know, let's say, quote unquote, all in on something, that you have some time to uh, to recover and balance that out. I think it was uh, Stephen King who who kind of said for him that that not working is the real work, right? So he had to make it very obvious that hey, I need to step away from things and rest and recover and recharge so that I can do the work 
at the level that I need to. So you, you think of like, so a good way to think of it is like rest is work. That, that'll probably help the overachievers that want to go all the time. It's like, well, actually when you're resting, you're actually working sort of a mind trick. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's a mindset thing, right? Because, you know, it's just like in the physical standpoint, if we go lift weights, we don't get stronger when we're lifting weights. We get stronger when our body is resting and recovering and repairing things. The same thing happens from a mental standpoint of, you know, if I'm going to learn stuff, I don't actually really learn it when I'm reading over the material. I learn it when my my brain is kind of digesting and like cementing those as memories. The same thing happens with pursuing whatever passion it is, is we need that period of rest recovery to make sure that we don't burn out. Well, another thing people don't talk about when it comes to passion is say you, you, you discover something, you have success, it's been going on for the long term, but like it can't last. Sometimes it doesn't last forever. Like sometimes maybe the thing you're passionate about, you can just no longer do. This probably happens with athletes, right? Because age, they'll age out and they can no longer pursue that passion of theirs. Or it could just happen like you just not, aren't passionate about it anymore. I mean, I'm not talking like you're just temporarily burnt out. Like I'm talking about you've really just lost your passion for something altogether, right? But no one tells you, like, what do you do when that happens? So like, what do you do when you can no longer do the thing you're passionate about? I guess those are, those are two different situations. The, the approach might yeah. be different. It's like, what happens when you can no longer do the thing you're passionate about because of age, because of changing business uh, you know, market factors? So what happens there? And then also, what do you do when you're just no longer passionate about the thing you used to be passionate about? So the uh, I'll, I'll take the first one first, which is what do you do if, if there's a change in the situation where you can no longer do the thing that you're passionate about? That is really, really hard. There is a reason that elite athletes suffer from anxiety and depressive disorders at a greater rate than the normal population upon their retirement. And there's a reason that entrepreneurs who are forced to sell their companies or stop working also really struggle with mood disorders. And that is because if you are devoting so much of yourself to this thing, as Steve mentioned, if a portion of your identity is tied to this thing and suddenly you can't do the thing, well, there is like a huge hole that was filled that is now open. So how do you prevent this from happening? I think first and foremost is to know when you're going into a passion that it might not be forever. And that's a really good motivating force to make sure that you're diversifying yourself at least enough where if you had to stop doing what you're doing in an extreme, life still feels good and at the very least worth living. I think the second thing is, is you're reaching a transition period. Just because you have to leave the thing that you're passionate about doesn't mean that you leave all of the skills, capabilities, uh, and relationships that you developed behind. So particularly when working with athletes, something that we like to ask are, well, in order to be a world-class athlete, you have to have discipline, drive, perhaps some kind of competitive nature. Well, what are other fields where those same core functions can work really well and can give you, as, as we go back to where we started, can give you that sense of mastery or competence and where you can blossom somewhere else. So how can you apply some of the things that, that made you passionate and that worked in your passion elsewhere? All of that said, perhaps most important is some kind of community around you. Because again, it's kind of like the balance thing. Like no one likes talking about it, but like it sucks. Like when you have to stop doing something that you love, it is really, really hard. And nothing softens that blow more than supportive community. 
And supportive community isn't necessarily people that don't get it telling you to like cheer up. If anything, supportive community is the opposite. It's people that have been there that can sit with you, be present for you and be like, you know, this is a really tough transition time. It sucks. I'm going to be here to support you. And like, you're going to work through it. Well, speaking of some of the examples of athletes, something I've seen them do is oftentimes they'll transition to coaching after they've their their career as an athlete as they did. Or like in the NFL or basketball, you'll see these guys, while they're still athletes in the off-season, they'll go to like broadcast school so they can learn, maybe hopefully transition to becoming a sportscaster. Yeah, that's awesome. JJ Redick is a great example of that right now on uh, the Philadelphia 76ers. He's got a podcast on Bill Simmons, uh, The Ringer Channel. And I mean, he's a, he's a hell of a shooter, but he's also a great, a great podcast host. So I think like that's a beautiful example of this, this diversification. Let's say that you're not an elite athlete because most people aren't. Even if you're just really passionate about your job, like retirement is a really hard thing for a lot of people. So the analogous thing there would be that while you're in your work, cultivate some kind of side hustle. And, and again, like we're talking about the extremes because I think you, you learn from the extremes, but my great uncle was a financial advisor, loved his job. And when the time to retire was coming, he took up all these hobbies. It's kind of like the, the, the youthful exploring your interest. And he got really into jewelry making. I mean, and this is like a straight edge, black, black suit, red tie, you know, co- corporate dude. And he started making jewelry and selling it in nursing homes. And now he's got like a jewelry studio in his basement. So it, it, th- that same theme, whether you're JJ Reddick on a podcast or my uncle making jewelry, I think it's real important to make sure that you're cultivating something else that you can be passionate about when you move on. So let's talk about the instance of, let's say you just, you, you lose the passion for the thing that you were once passionate about. What, what happens there? Steve, I'll let you take this one. Sure. Yeah, I think there is what you need to almost uh, delineate is and discover, is this something that I can rekindle or is this something that I should move on from? And I think the first thing you try and do is is see if you still have that love for the passion that you're doing. And the best way to do that is actually to kind of reflect and, and re-engage on why you do that activity. Like, why did you get involved in it in the, in the first part? Uh, in the first part, like what is your purpose for that? If you can rediscover that, and then a lot of times you can rekindle your passion because what happens is as we've been doing something for years and years and years, like our motivation and drive uh, gets slowly shifted from maybe that original um, feeling to something more, you know, I don't know, more just kind of going through the motions on things and and uh, not that initial joy. So reflecting on your purpose, like really re-engaging with why you started that. And also another thing that helps is is also get a get a new perspective for uh, what it is you're doing. So a lot of times what I've seen is athletes who have been doing the same sport for maybe 15, 20 years is if if they start to give back and say, hey, I'm going to start helping, you know, the rookie players or the younger athletes or, you know, volunteer coach at a, a youth league, what happens is they see, you know, young athletes or young people engaging with their sport and it reminds them why they did it in the first place. And they kind of re-engage and you know, reformulate that passion. So whether that's on the athletic field or in the business world, kind of taking some mentorship under your under your wings and rekindling that fire can be a great way to do so. And then if you can't rekindle it, just be okay with moving on? 
Yeah, there I think it, it goes to what Brad said is it's like coming to terms with moving on. And I think one of the things that we found was really powerful is that whenever you stop a passion or a career, it almost feels like a death, right? It's like part of me is dying. So that's a really traumatic thing. And what happens is people feel like they almost lose control of their sense of self or lose control of their story. So what we encourage people to do is always make sure that you're you're in control of your story and you're writing it, right? So it's not that, you know, Steve, the, the athlete is dying. It's that, hey, how do I want this story written? How do I want to to see this. And in a lot of ways, it's no different than how you get over a a bad breakup, right? If you get over a bad breakup, one of the tactics is to sit there and think back and almost reformulate how you saw the entire relationship. You sit there and are like, oh no, she or he wasn't good for me because they did this, this, and this, and this right? We, we have that same power and that ability when we're moving on from a career or passion. So take advantage of it, be in control of like how you're writing your story. Well, Steve, Brad, this has been a great conversation. Where can people go to learn more about the book and the rest of your work? Yeah. So the, the book has a website, which is www.passionparadoxbook.net. And I am on Twitter at B. Stahlberg, and Steve is on Twitter and Instagram at Steve Magnus. And yeah, the, that, that's it. Fantastic. Well, Brad, Steve, thanks for your time. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. Great conversation. Yeah, thanks a lot. My guests today were Brad Stolberg and Steve Magnus. They are the authors of the book, The Passion Paradox. It's available on Amazon.com and bookstores everywhere. You can find out more information about their work and their book at passionparadoxbook.com. Also check out our show notes at aom.is slash passionparadox, where you can find links to resources where you can delve deeper into this topic. Well, that wraps up another edition of the AOM Podcast. Check out our website, artofmanliness.com, where you find all of the podcasts in our archives. There's over 490 there. Also, thousands of articles we've written about money and career, personal finance, fitness, just how to be a better dad, better husband, better father. Check it out, artofmanliness.com while you're there. Sign up for our newsletter. And if you haven't done so already, I'd appreciate if you take one minute to give us a review on iTunes or Stitcher. It helps out a lot. And if you've done that already, thank you. Please consider sharing the show with a friend or family member who you think would get something out of it. Send them a text. Bring it up in conversation things like that. As always, thank you for your continued support. And until next time, this is Brett McKay reminding you not only listen to the AWIN podcast, but put what you've heard into action. 